Now we saw this morning how Nehemiah had found out about the situation in Jerusalem. The walls had been destroyed and they had been lying in ruins for almost a hundred years. You can imagine that the people became so accustomed to the state of the place that they simply walked over the rubble and never considered it at all. The gates were burned with fire, so there was no security to the city whatsoever. Uh, You know that in those times, cities had walls around them for safety. Jerusalem, to put it plainly, was in a mess. Nehemiah heard about it from his brother, and he was deeply distressed. Distressed because nothing had been done to repair the walls and to fix the gates. And we saw this morning how Nehemiah, his first resort was to pray. And he prayed and he fasted, not just for a day or two days. He began to pray that God would do something and that he would make himself available to be that someone to do something. Not just for a couple of days, he started to pray in December and he didn't approach the king until April. Now we can safely assume that for four or five months the situation in Jerusalem was at the forefront of Nehemiah's thoughts and prayers. And it seems clear that the burden upon his heart for Jerusalem was becoming more and more overwhelming as time went on. So much so that he could no longer maintain a facade of cheerfulness as he went about his duties in the presence of the king. Let me remind you again what this office of cupbearer meant. It meant really that Nehemiah was the second most important man in the kingdom. He was the king's confidant. He was the man that the king spoke to more than any other when no one else had entrance into the presence of the king, the cupbearer or the rabshaki had access to the king. He could talk to him, he could present things to him, he could offer him advice and so on. But eastern kings were notoriously fickle. And they could be easily upset. And they could easily, um, they could easily turn against someone who'd been their favourite previously. Now the king noticed something about this 
trusted advisor, Nehemiah. He noticed that he was so distressed that he was not any longer able to hide it. Previously, when he'd been in the king's presence, he was able to maintain a facade of cheerfulness. But the burden became so much that he was no longer able to maintain it. And the king, it seems, wisely, was able to discern what the problem was. Verse 2, And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? And then with great insight, he says, This is nothing but sadness of the heart. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And that's interesting, isn't it? Nehemiah was not able to put the distressed state of the people of God out of his mind. And I contrast that with ourselves. I contrast that with how we react when we hear of the low condition of the people of God when we hear of distressing things that take place in the professing church. And when I was thinking about this, I wondered how often our employers or our friends or even our family would notice from our faces how much we took to heart the decline and apostasy so, uh, so prevalent in the professing church. Would our employers know? Would they be able to say, this is nothing else but sadness of heart? Because we're concerned about the false gospel that is so often presented, that we are concerned about the iniquitous behavior of so many within the professing church? Does it cause us, as it did Nehemiah, grief and anxiety and sadness of heart? Now, when the king inquired the reason for his sadness, Nehemiah was quite naturally afraid. For Eastern rulers in those days had the absolute power of life and death. Nehemiah's fear, however, didn't prevent him from telling the king exactly what was in his heart. His reply, as we read it here, is a model of conciseness, respect, and left the king in no doubt about the problem that was weighing so heavily on him. Now the way that the king responded gives an indication of the regard that the king had for him. He could simply have considered it to be a matter of little importance, 
relating as it did to a foreign city, a strange religion. But instead, he asks Nehemiah what it is that he wants the king to do. And what a great example this is of the truth of the scripture that says the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whichever way he wills. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1. So let's get into this second chapter. And we're looking this evening at Nehemiah the man. What, who was this Nehemiah? What was it that made him the man he was? And we've got to look quite simply at three things. First of all, he was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. We have already seen that Nehemiah engaged in prayer from December to April. We saw that when he first heard the news, he went days without end, without food or drink. Now it's clear from the response that Nehemiah made to the king that he had given much thought to what needed to be done to resolve the situation in Jerusalem. As he had wept and prayed during these, remember this, three months, three months, day after day, night after night, Nehemiah prayed. This was not something that happened suddenly. He continued in prayer. He had evidently, in his praying, sought wisdom from God. We read that in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, how it is God who gives wisdom. And so Nehemiah, constantly praying, asking God to act, asking God to give him wisdom. When the opportunity arose to tell the king what was in his mind, And here's something very interesting. The first thing that Nehemiah does, as he did when he heard the news, he prayed. Look at what it says. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is an example of what someone has called an arrow prayer. There was no time for Nehemiah to ask the king if he could go away for a while and pray. This was an immediate reaction. Right there in the presence of the king and the queen, being, as we've already seen, in a situation of fear, He was afraid when the king had noticed the state he was in. He quickly and silently asks God for wisdom and for courage to present his request to the king. And there's a lesson here 
Not, not for this type of arrow prayer. There are times when we need that. But a lesson about prayer altogether. No amount of planning or forethought in the work of God can succeed without prayer and Nehemiah knew that. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He knew what he wanted to do in Jerusalem. He knew what needed to be done in Jerusalem. But he prayed. He knew that it depended upon the king. He he knew that he couldn't simply up sticks and, and leave and go to Jerusalem. He was a servant of the king. And so Nehemiah prays. For three months, he prays. No planning, no work of God, no matter how diligently we plan, can be effective without prayer. And the kind of prayer that Nehemiah uttered here, this arrow prayer. This is evidence of a life lived in the presence of God. A life lived in the presence of the Lord. You see, for Nehemiah to pray, it was as natural as breathing. It wasn't something that needed great deliberation or great preparation. It was something that he did naturally. Just as you don't think about breathing, it's something we do. And so it was with Nehemiah. He didn't have to think about praying. He didn't have to to think what would be a good thing to do now. The natural reaction of Nehemiah was to pray, to ask God for wisdom. And there's one other very significant and vital element in this meeting between Nehemiah and the king. When the king granted Nehemiah's request, Nehemiah did not attribute his success to the greatness of his plan or to the high esteem in which the king held him, which he obviously did, but to the fact that the hand of God was on him. In verse 8, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah demonstrated the need for planning, prayer, and the presence and power of God in any work that was undertaken for the Lord. You know, sometimes we're good at the planning. We're good at at working out what needs to be done. But perhaps we're not just as good at the praying I was thinking back the other day 
about the 1859 revival here. And I thought about those handful of men in Kells in County Antrim. These, I think it was six men, they were disturbed about the situation of the country. And so they met to pray. And they prayed in the old schoolhouse in Kells. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And God sent this great awakening throughout the whole land of Ulster. Hundreds of people were converted. There was a dramatic revival because men prayed. They didn't, they didn't set out a great organized campaign of meetings here and meetings there and calling upon the, uh, the best preachers in the land to take these meetings. No, they prayed. They prayed and God sent his spirit. And so it was with Nehemiah. Nehemiah spent three months praying. And then even before he, he mentions to the king all that his thinking and his praying had come up with, again, he prayed to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah evidently was a man of prayer. And you know, when we think about Nehemiah, and I, I think we do this sometimes with people in the Bible, we think that they're somehow some sort of special people. They're not. They're people like us. They're people just like us. When we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how could these men face a burning, fiery furnace? You say, I could never do it. Well, God hasn't put you in that situation. But Nehemiah, like these other great saints we see in the scripture, they're ordinary people, just like us. People who know their own inadequacy, who know their own weakness, and yet have an unshakable confidence in the power and the wisdom of God. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. But secondly, Nehemiah was a man of planning. He was a man of planning. Not only was he a man who had great faith and great wisdom and practicality, when the king asked about his journey, look at what he says. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's, my father's graves that I may rebuild it. The king said, how long will he be gone? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Obviously, this was a part of his planning. He thought, what do I need to do? 
I'm going to be leaving here and going to Jerusalem. I'm going to pass through some difficult territory. I need letters. And then he says, and a letter to Asaph, he even knew who it was, a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. He was bold enough to ask the king, but he had already made those plans. There could well have been difficulties passing through the various provinces on the other side of the river Euphrates. So Nehemiah asked for letters that would gain him safe passage. He needed the building materials and he asked the king fearlessly to provide them. And such was the evidence of the hand of God upon him that the king granted all his requests. Now, that to me is astonishing. He was this man, he, he was a servant. Although he was a high official, he was still a servant. And he has the temerity to ask the king for all these things. And the king granted it to him because the hand of God was on him. I wonder... There was a book written many years ago and it was called Your God is Too Small. And I think so often our God is too small. We don't ask him for big enough things. Nehemiah's request was enormous and he asked the king and the king granted his request. He had confidence in a sovereign God. And it's quite clear that Nehemiah had a plan. And this, of course, is a reflection of the way in which God works. God is a planning God. This is seen preeminently in the divine plan for the salvation of the elect. God made a choice of his people in eternity. He planned the coming and the work of Christ to the last detail. He came at the right time. He came at the appointed time. And he continues to execute his plan in the salvation of sinners. Our God is a planning God. Nehemiah had a plan. Now the plans that we make may not always be wise. They may not always be feasible. And they may not always come to fruition. It is also true that, that God sometimes... Uh, does not bless in, uh, or, or does bless in spite of our lack of planning. But God works through planning. If not ours, then his. One commentator puts it like this. 
He says, faith is no substitute for planning. We aren't more spiritual for failing to plan and for shooting from the hip. There may be some times when we simply can't plan, but we should never reject planning. So Nehemiah was a man of prayer, and he was a man of planning. But the third thing that we see here is that Nehemiah was a man of purpose. He was a man of purpose. He has spent much time in prayer and planning. He'd worked out everything that needed to be done. But the crucial thing is seen in three little words. So I went. So I went. It is possible for us to be concerned, to pray, to have a vision for what needs to be done, but stop short of actually doing what needs to be done. It's possible for us to plan, to pray, and then say, that's me finished. I've done everything. Nehemiah prayed. Nehemiah planned. And Nehemiah went. We shouldn't imagine that the decision of Nehemiah to go was an easy one. And we mustn't imagine that the work that he was facing was an easy one to do. These walls and gates had been ruined for almost a hundred years. The people that were there in Jerusalem, they'd seen it. They knew all about it. And here was this man who had never been in Jerusalem before. He was going to appear there and tell him to get on with the building. You can imagine that he might have had difficulties. But Nehemiah was willing to go. It's easy to talk about working for God, planning evangelistic strategies, praying for them to be successful, and then to do nothing. Prayer and planning are absolutely essential. But it is when we begin to do something that the enemy of our souls begins to take notice. Notice. Verse 9, he says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, so he was protected. What a wonderful thing the king had done for him. But listen to this. But when Sanballat the Horonite, 
And Tobiah the Ammonite, the Ammonite servant, heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. It was when Nehemiah began to take action to put his plan into operation that he began to experience opposition. It was displeasing to these men that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Now, think about this. Before Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem, the temple was there, the sacrifices were being held, everyday life was carrying on as normal in Jerusalem, and the people of Israel appeared to be worshipping as they had done before. But there seemed to be no opposition. No opposition for those who opposed the cause of God and truth. They were quite happy to let them get on with it because they weren't troubling them. If they wanted to go to the temple, if they wanted to offer sacrifices, that's fine. As long as you don't bother us. Now someone was coming who was seeking the welfare of Jerusalem. Here was coming somebody who didn't want to see the walls broken down, who didn't want to see the gates burned with fire, who wanted to see Jerusalem established as it had been previously, as a place where God was known. Not simply where sacrifice was made, not, not simply where there was Jewish ritual being performed, but somewhere where God would be. And this was what Nehemiah was coming to do. And it was only when somebody arrived who was seeking the welfare of the sons of Israel that these enemies began to be concerned. And it's true in our day too. It's not the mere existence of the professing church of God, the church of Christ, that is of concern to the evil one. It's not even just that believers plan to reach out into their communities with the gospel. It's not even when believers pray. It is when vision, planning, and prayer are translated into action that the devil begins to get worried. Think about it in this way. You can, you can see a great army parading, and they can look fine, and they can look very much in step and in order, all their buttons gleaming and boots gleaming. 
their weapons clean. But that doesn't bother anybody. It's a nice spectacle. But when you see the tanks rolling up the street, when you see them beginning to work, then that causes trouble. I'm sure the people in Ukraine knew that the Russian army was the other side of the border, but they weren't particularly bothered. That was them and this is us. But when the tanks began to roll over the border, then they began to be worried. And it's when God's people not only pray, not only plan, but actually get out and do something that the, the devil begins to get worried. When we begin to invade his territory, then he begins to worry. You see, he doesn't really worry too much about this. This is our territory. He's not terribly concerned about that. But when we go out into his, and when we begin to seek to bring people from his kingdom into ours, then he begins to be worried. When believers have a genuine concern for the cause of Christ and are willing to sacrifice themselves to seek the welfare of God's church and the extension of the kingdom of Christ, they may expect that opposition will arise to seek to hinder the work. There are many of our fellow believers in other lands who suffer persecution for the cause of Christ. And it's largely because they're invading the devil's territory. We have had it too easy for too long. When we pray and when we plan and then we take that final step and we go and we work that the devil begins to be alarmed and we shouldn't be surprised that Tobiah and Sambalat were displeased because someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And we'll see, as we continue with this, uh, this short series, we'll see how Tobiah and Sambalat continued to attack the work of God and the work that Nehemiah was doing. Three simple words tonight. Pray, plan, and go. Amen.